0: Welcome to Bring Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Sherilyn Hale, founder and principal of Watermark Philanthropic Advising. We will also be joined by Jane Potencier, Assistant Dean of Advancement for the Faculty of Arts at the University of Alberta, and Tom Barakoff, founder and CEO of TPB Strategic Council. Rounding out our panel will be Andrea McManus, a founding partner of Trail Group. Today's topic is the future of fundraising, We're going to take you inside the recent AFP International Fundraising Conference in San Francisco, we're going to talk about bots advising donors, and we're going to hear about the philanthropic legacy of the outgoing Governor-General of Canada. All this and more is coming up next on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo.
1: We have a terrific group with us today. Joining us from Toronto, Sherilyn Hale. Sherilyn and I first met when we were both doing some work for the YMCA of the Greater Toronto Area. Sherilyn is the founder and principal of Toronto-based Watermark Consulting. Thanks, Sherilyn, and welcome. Sherilyn, I know that your work brings you into contact with both charities and donors. Increasingly, however, you have been spending more of your time working on behalf of donors and giving families. Can you share with us how that happened and, and what are some of the biggest differences you have seen working on behalf of the donor versus working solely with, on behalf of the charity? Sherilyn? Mm.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be uh, with the panel today. Um, yeah, well, so, you know, I have to start um, by reflecting on uh, my lifelong career as a fundraiser. Um, fundraising was my first job, and um, up until I started my business a few years ago was all that I had ever done, Um and when I started my business, I was reflecting on, you know, what is so meaningful to me about my work? And uh, and that was the donors and working with philanthropists. And um, so that is a key pillar uh, of my work with Watermark. Uh, and I have continued to find it incredibly satisfying and exciting. Um, I think the uh, most interesting thing about working uh, with philanthropists and their families uh, in this capacity is um, I'm really able to be present with them uh, to help them and support them to identify uh, their key interests, their aspirations for philanthropy, where their personal and family values uh, connect uh, and and where truly they can make the the greatest difference. And um you know we do that work as fundraisers when when we work within an organization, but it's with the organizational lens and context um, and interest. and um so to be able to sit at a table with um with a, a philanthropist who's really um, you know wanting to to uh, do something wonderful, uh, the sky's the limit. And um, so I, I have found that to be very exciting. And uh, and I've also found that philanthropists are um, eager to have that type of sounding board uh, and counsel. And, um, and that has actually given me some pause to reflect on the years uh, that I was a, a fundraiser within organizations, uh, just re- reflecting on, you know, how – how much or how well I provided that type of context for, for people in their decision-making. And um, so it was it has been food for thought, for sure.
1: Well, thanks so much. Uh, we're, we'll probably circle back with that. I think there's some some future of fundraising conversations in there. Thanks, Sherilyn. Mm-hmm. Um, from Edmonton, we have Jane Potenti. I've known Jane for over 15 years. We worked together at the University of Alberta back in the early 2000s um jane is still at the u of a where she is the assistant dean of advancement in the faculty of arts jane thank you so much for coming on our podcast welcome for our listeners who might not know what the term advancement means would you can you give us a short definition i can try and do that vincent um
3: it's an interesting word actually i mean um we think about it in terms of advancing our organisation um, in every way that we that we possibly can. In, t- in terms of the structure within a university um, within a university setting, it typically encompasses everything uh, working with our alumni and uh, alumni relations. So, working with our alumni to become hopefully champions, advocates, and hopefully also potentially future donors for the organization, and also all the work with uh, those um, who are generous and and, and donate to the university, so everything from looking after their um, stewardship of gifts and fundraising. Um, And more broadly, it often includes uh, other aspects of external relations too, so that more comprehensive, who are the other stakeholders in the community that may uh, contribute time or energy or support from the university in different ways.
1: Thanks, thank- Jane. I know a lot A lot of people ask. Sorry, I cut you off. What were you saying?
3: I was just going to say, and I, I didn't say, but thank you very much for asking me to join this today. I'm really excited to hear the conversation too, so.
1: Awesome. Thanks. Also from Edmonton, Tom Berakoff. Tom and I both hail from Edmonton, and we have both been fundraisers for a long time, but we've only gotten to know each other in the last few years. Tom is the founder and CEO of TPB Strategic Council. I'm assuming those are your initials, Tom. You can tell us about that. A Canadian-based consultancy serving charitable and not-for-profit organizations, philanthropic businesses, and individuals. Tom, I know that you have recently joined the CFRE board. For those who don't know, can you share with us what what CFRE uh, means and maybe a bit about what your role on the board uh, is evolving to be?
4: Tom? Tom? Thanks, thanks so much, Vincent. And like the others, I just want to extend a personal word of thanks to trail for having this, uh, this, uh, chance to speak with uh, peers and talk about the future of our industry. Uh, CFRE International is uh, a wonderful organization, certified fundraising executives, uh, the only accredited credentialing, uh, entity for fundraising professionals globally. Um, it's here to prove our knowledge of best practice and ethical fundraising. Um, it helps to enhance our credibility as professionals and that of the organizations we serve and also provides, hopefully, a, a greater sense of career opportunity for those who choose to pursue their designation. Um, presently, CFRE is focusing upon a, a globalization movement as, as, in fact, philanthropy moves worldwide. Um, we have members from over 30 nations. Um, it's an exciting time for CFRE International. And, and just as an early plug, I want to encourage those who are practicing in our field to really consider seriously uh, pursuing their designation.
1: Well, thanks, Tom. Appreciate that. And thank you for your service on the board. I know, uh, Sherilyn, you also used to be uh, involved with that, I think, for seven years and, and uh, our past chair. So thank you for that. Um, and from right here in Calgary, I'm very happy to welcome in her first appearance on the podcast, my business partner, at Betrayo, Andrea McManus. Um, Andrea's accomplishments really are too long to list in a single podcast, but here are a few. Uh, in addition to being one of the three founding partners of the Treo, Andrea was the first person outside of the United States to hold the position of chair of the International Board of the Association of Fundraising Professionals. Andrea has and currently sits on a number of national and regional boards and councils, including the Canada Revenue Agency's Charities Technical Issues Working Group. That's a mouthful. On April 27th, Andrea, alongside a small number of Canadian fundraisers and non-profit leaders, was invited to Ottawa to join Canada's outgoing Governor General, David Johnson, at his Working Together for the Common Good, the Governor General's Conference on Giving. Andrea, I'm wondering if, if you wouldn't mind, would you would you be able to share with us some of the high points from that conference? I know you were very excited to be to be part of that. Andrea? Oh,
5: for sure. Yeah, I, I, I was very honored. But uh, just before I do that, <clears throat> I'm... Uh, Everyone has expressed their thanks to the trail. So since I'm actually sitting on that side of the table, I want to express my thanks to everybody for participating in this. And, uh, I would also say that, um, um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that while I was chair of AFP, uh, Lynn was actually the first, uh, non-US person to be, to
2: chair the CFRE board. Ah, so, uh, the
1: front part of the way.
2: I I was actually the second. uh, Oh, were you? Yeah, Pearl Venema was before me. Um, Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, But, you know, it was really great uh, when we were both in those positions because we were able to, uh, you know, collaborate and um, really advance the relationship between the two organizations. And, uh, yeah, that was terrific.
5: Two Canadians leading the charge. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was great. Um, yeah, the, the um, Governor General event, um, which is more commonly known now uh, as the GG event, was uh, it was it was really quite amazing. Um, it wasn't just nonprofit leaders; there were a lot of for-profit. Uh, well, there was about a hundred people altogether, uh, and also people from the for-profit sector who have um, a, a, a profile or a, a role to play or influence um in nonprofit. And the the Governor General all governor generals get a certain amount of, of money when they leave office to do their libraries or um whatever good works they want to put it to. And David Johnson, because philanthropy has been such a such a uh, uh high um priority for him in his time as uh GG has started the Rideau Hall Foundation, and um, that will go on to be chaired by um, subsequent uh, governor generals. Um, but he is getting it launched, and that's going to be, I think, be pretty exciting. Um, the, the mission of that organization is is not to. Uh, well, I'll say what it is. It, it is to fund capacity building projects in the sector, and and to advance. Um, the nonprofit and charitable sector in Canada and the work of that sector. So how that will play out, it's, it's a fairly, you know, new organization. Um, but how that will play out, I think, will be something that we'll all want to watch and see. There were a number of panels in the morning, um, very interesting panels on uh, what's happening in, in giving um, and how people are giving. There was a panel on millennials. There was a panel on research. And in the afternoon was um, a, a presentation and almost a workshop-type uh, time on um, nudge, really nudge, nudge theory, again, around nudge theory and, and uh, behavioral sciences, which is becoming...
1: What you know, is what is nudge much. theory?
5: Uh, nudge theory is uh, that you can change behavior by small, minute, little nudges to people. And so it was kind of interesting for me. For me at that at, on that because they were talking a lot about premium items in in direct mail, which I think all the fundraisers knew about, but I was surprised to see how uh the non fundraisers, which were the majority of people, were looking with such interest on oh wow, so that's why you put things in, <laughs> in mail that's why you give little you know little cholky items or or whatever it is. And it was kind of a light bulb moment a, a, a bit for me because, you know, we've, by and large, already been doing a lot of that. But you go to any conference now, any, any fundraising-related conference, and there's somebody who will be speaking on um, behavioral science and, and neuroscience and, you know, how how people's brains work. I mean, it's just such a relevant topic in almost anything, not just what we do, but anything in society. So that was pretty interesting. It was oh, a great day, well,
1: it was really a great day. Well, well thank, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that. I believe, uh, it, unless I, I might, I don't think I'm mistaken, but I, uh, the Canada Revenue Agency is actually using some of that nudge theory with Canadians on some of the materials they're sending out to folks. I think they're making line like comments on the top, like uh, uh, only, you know, only you know, I don't know, one in, one in 100 Canadians uh, doesn't file their taxes or something like that, which helps people nudge Absolutely. towards doing it.
5: And and that they had a couple us. of examples. Their their examples actually were were UK because it was a, a UK company. But um it's not just I should say it's not just premium items. I mean that's how we one of the ways that we use it. Uh but it is. It 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 those small statements that can make a difference uh on how you position someone and and increasing response rates and whether it's paying your taxes or whatever it is.
1: That's awesome. Thanks, it's Andrew. It's a very
5: broad application, yeah.
1: Well, thank you all for joining us on this, our, our third podcast. So so the world is 138 days into 2017. Donald Trump has been president for 117 of those days. Millennials are now the single largest demographic in North America, and here in Canada, seniors now outnumber children. Um, the very wealthy are using artificial intelligence to tell them where to make their gifts, so against this backdrop, just what is the future of fundraising? Jane Jane, you were just at the International Fundraising Conference in San Francisco, the AFP conference. What you went to a couple of sessions, more than a couple of sessions I'm sure, but what were you hearing uh at these sessions and over dinner with delegates? <clears throat>
3: Yes, I I did have the uh, opportunity to go. It was a great conference, by the way. Um, Really, really good. Uh, One of the sessions that I went to was actually called "The Future of Philanthropy," and it was Ted Hart that uh, presented there. Um, And certainly, I could probably fill the entire podcast with all the different things that I learned at the conference. But one of the things that stood out for me was, and I certainly feel like I'm sure I've observed this too in the work that we're we're doing here at the university, and I'm sure. Uh, all of you have seen this too. We um, really talked about uh, whether it was at the major gift level or more generally the rise of do-it-yourself in fundraising or in philanthropy. So thinking about how donors themselves are having the opportunity to to really um, direct. Uh, and think about it from their own perspective, their direct involvement in their own philanthropy in a way that we haven't really seen before. And that could be everything from what we were talking about a little bit at the beginning, I guess, around things like donor-advised funds. Um, uh One of the things that I learned that was a, a, actually a surprise to me, I didn't realize, is that Fidelity is the number one charity in the United States, which is a major mm-hmm. donor-advised fund, mm-hmm. right? So there's, on that side of it, but then thinking about more generally things like um, personal fundraising tools, uh, Facebook now launching its own, uh, in the U.S. anyway, personal fundraising uh, tool within Facebook, and obviously things that we hear like crowdfunding and those kinds of areas where individuals at all kinds of levels are able to really get involved personally in fundraising in a way that they haven't before, and how fundraisers, professional fundraisers, need to adapt to fit into that new model. So that was hmm. one one big theme that came out.
4: There Any were a few other things that I
3: learned about too. And then one of the other um uh big themes was really about um uh, mobile too, which isn't surprising either. So really a whole a whole theme around technology but particularly the prevalence of uh, using cell phone um, and integration with, uh, also with social media, but in different ways, too. So there's a whole thread around that as well that is really interesting, um, including even use of virtual reality and that kind of thing. So there were some technology themes and there were some kind of themes around individual influence around fundraising. Hmm. Yes, what,
4: what, what um. Go ahead, Tom. I, I just wanted to offer, and perhaps this is just me with having this, this very gray lens, being a guy who's a, a boomer and thinking, you know, as as much as we have advanced as a profession in the use of technology and with sophisticated tools and analytics and dashboards and what have you, and I, I agree that all these things are so supremely important. My hope and deep desire is that we remember that we're still in the people business and that The reason, in part, why donors are looking for self-directed means to be able to give is that I think charities and the organizations that um, are in the position of privilege to represent specific causes think that they're an end rather than a means to an end in connecting the donor to the beneficiary. And and my hope, more than anything, as we move forward as a profession, we continue to remind ourselves and hold ourselves accountable to the fact that we are there to serve the greater good.
1: All right.
5: I think that's yeah.
1: was, Go ahead, Andrea.
5: Okay, I I was just gonna say that a, a couple of things in, in in uh along that line of thinking. Um uh, one of the um startling statistics that came out that I heard at the um at the Governor General's event and it was on the panel that included um Marina Glokovic who's the CEO of Canada Health and she she commented and I so I can't attribute this to anyone but her. But their data shows them that 26% of all giving is now online, and it's a, it is the fastest growing um, channel um, for uh, by far the fastest growing channel. And that uh, if you, and and then did some did some um, comparisons on you know the different generations, which kind of makes me laugh sometimes because. I, I certainly don't think that when I was the age of a millennial or the age of an of I Gen or Gen Z, whichever you call it. So
1: just a few years um, ago, then.
5: Yeah, just a few years ago. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't think I don't think the world ever spent so much time talking about millennials as we do now. I'm sure I don't think my parents looked at me and said, oh. Gosh, that boomer child you know we <laughs> I mean, just can't figure her out it i, I think it's 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 a bit, it's a bit humorous, but um you know that next generation uh will be looking i mean they were born with technology and they do everything on their phone and they will be looking for apps hmm. as, as a as a method of giving and and to um tom's point i i think one of the challenges for for us as fundraisers is to keep that that uh, face-to-face, that, that personal connection with our donors, I think is going to become even more challenging.
1: I, I think we might have to retitle a session in the future instead of the future of fundraising, the future of fundraising relationships. Those are both great comments. Sherilyn, you were trying to uh, offer up a comment earlier. Did you want to wanna
3: sneak in?
2: Yeah, I, uh I just uh, wanted to acknowledge Tom's point about the the importance of of relationships and um you know, we can talk about uh the the various platforms of of technology and there are ways wonderful ways that technology can strengthen the relationship between donors and potential donors and organizations um but you know, I, there's still that that human uh, connection that um, that I think is instrumental to so many of our organizations. Um, you know, the data tells us that the best donors are volunteers in the organization. Um, mm-hmm. Just as an example, and and that uh, ability to engage people, particularly for for local community-based organizations, the ability to engage people. Uh, in meaningful activities in leadership volunteer positions, and so forth um, can really be instrumental to informing their philanthropic decisions and so having having that capacity in organizations uh, to to nurture those relationships uh, in appropriate ways on behalf of the organization uh, I think will remain very critical um I think the flip side of that however, is uh in that I've observed in my work uh, with philanthropists directly is sometimes they don't want a personal relationship with an organization
4: <laughs> uh,
2: and um you know they're they're quite happy to uh have an intermediary. Uh, to, you know, as an agent um, in engaging with the organization, they're quite happy to be as anonymous as possible, to have a really low profile, uh, even though they may feel very strongly about the, the mission and the work and the impact of the organization. Uh, and so I think part of um, the work of an effective fundraiser and in, in the relationship piece is uh, understanding that people enter relationships um, with different expectations and have different terms under which they want to be engaged, um, and and so you know being aware of those nuances. Um, those different doorways. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, Sherilyn, that was you. You you magically segued to a question I was going to point to you on, and uh, and I I wonder if I c- we could dig in a bit about. You said sometimes they don't want to have a relationship, like uh, that, that in, in in the way that we can. You can you dig into that from your perspective. What, what's the motivations under underneath that? Why don't they want, or why do they want to have an intermediary? What are the the drivers there? hmm
5: Um,
2: you know, I can speak anecdotally. Uh, only, yeah, sorry, I wasn't trying uh, to get
1: you to throw anyone under the bus.
2: Yeah, no, no, no. Um, and I guess I am also not particularly aware of any research that I can reference to, to substantiate this. But um, just what I've picked up, even from my experience as a fundraiser, um, you know, I think people are are overwhelmed by uh, the uh, – they're pressed for time. Uh, they're overwhelmed by the, the number of organizations, either that they are interested in and or – the number of organizations that are approaching them, and so you know, to to have meaningful relationships with with lots right. of organizations can be difficult. And so, um, you know, many philanthropists will choose to to get quite focused, and with their top priority organizations, that's where they'll make that degree of commitment. Um, uh, you know, I've had uh, I've had families say. You know, when we make a major gift, it's with uh, an organization where we serve on the board um, because, you know, we have a, a deeper commitment to that organization. Um, we want to demonstrate our leadership in a public way by giving significantly, um, uh, whereas other organizations, uh, if they don't have a leadership position, they, they may still invest uh, significantly, but not publicly. Um, so you know, I think it's it's really all over the map. I think, um, I you know, I will say also, um, <laughs> having been a fundraiser my whole life, um, that it's been very interesting to hear perspectives uh, about fundraisers from philanthropists. Um, oh, do tell. <laughs> <laughs> um, and. You know, some speak to very wonderful uh, experiences, and where they felt that you know they were dealing with someone who was very competent, capable, respectful, um, uh, and effective. And other experiences that were not so much, where they felt um, you know they had a a dollar sign on their forehead that uh, the the uh, interaction wasn't authentic. That um, you know, I can't tell you how many donors, philanthropists. Have said to me, uh, you know, we supported an organization for a long time, we never heard from them, or we finished our pledge and they never came back to us. Mm. They didn't thank us, they didn't ask us to renew, so we've kind of moved on. Um, All those really basic hygiene, um, you know, fundraising hygiene um, things, uh, you know, they go a long way. So, you know, if you think about, if you think about the connection between hygiene and relationships, right, <laughs> like we, um, you know, it it's, uh, it goes, having a shower actually goes a long way. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Fantastic. So you, okay, I know that you were talking about hygiene in the literal and the metaphor uh, manner. So that was awesome. Um, what else is going on with with uh what is the future um of, of philanthropy from the donors or from the giving families perspective? Are there some changes of Um some some things that are changed from the past or is it the same old, same old just with um uh more folks who are in the intermediary positions?
2: Uh is that question for me?
1: It is, Sherilyn, I'm sorry, I should I think, have made that yeah. super clear.
2: No, that's fine. Um uh, you know I think um I've observed people feeling overwhelmed by the need in the community, the need in the world, um, feeling that you know even with tremendous resources, that uh, a fear that they still may not make a difference or they may not make an impact. Um, and so, how how do they deal with that overwhelmingness? those feelings of being overwhelmed um, they get very focused Uh, so they may they may choose um, you know top two or top three organizations or causes where they can really dig in deep uh, and feel that you know they can kind of see some some progress or some evolution Um, uh, interestingly not just on the issue or cause but also on their own uh Their own knowledge uh experience um, and engagement in that space uh and then I think that also speaks to relationships and how and how donors are are engaging so focus uh number one um i think uh, uh I think the other thing that is pertinent relative to fundraising is uh more families um looking to come together to make decisions collectively. And so whether that's in the context of a of a family foundation, it could be, it may not be. Um but having having capacity within organizations to engage families as opposed to just individual donors, you know, I think many of us thought you know, there was some progress made when uh, organizations started talking to husband and their wife. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> right.
1: Wow, rocket science.
2: Exactly, okay. exactly. But, you know, it's even more than that now. We're talking about, uh, you know, full family engagement, adult children. It could be multi-generational with grandparents, aunts and uncles. And, um, uh, you know, this speaks to a level of uh, trust that a family needs to have in, in an organization and the representatives of the organization to be open to that. But, um the families that I work with uh really appreciate um the opportunity to do that um and also the the receptivity of an organization to to understand that, okay, you know this person is part of a family ecosystem and uh and that has implications for for decision making, for engagement, for you know the life cycle of a gift uh coming to fruition and um uh i I think it's an area. With the increase of um, foundations, uh, which are growing exponentially, both in terms of number and in terms of assets, uh, I think this skill set around families will become increasingly important. Hmm.
4: Vincent, I I like the group? Want, go ahead, Tom. Yeah. I just wanted to add a little bit to, to what Sherilyn was saying and, and to, to offer that, um, you know, I think in many ways and in many cases today, our donors are as sophisticated and knowledgeable if not more knowledgeable about some of the needs in our communities and society than we are as charities. And so the, the context of the relationship when we're talking about, you know, major gift commitments needs to be one of a, a, a listening mode, obviously. But there there is uh, an offer that needs to be um, put forth. And it's not just from the charity, it's also by the donor and to find that right fit. And, and somewhere in that, you know, I think we, as as professionals and as charities, need to remember that we're not just trying to steward the donor for their dollar. We're also respecting the stewardship of their time, their intellect, and what have you. And uh, while we have to be uh, very focused upon things like rules and policies and regulatory issues, the donors know that. But I don't think we need to get fixated on those things, and, and we tend to proliferate the conversation based upon... Uh, what our internal machinations and structures are, rather than keeping the donor focused upon getting to the ends that they're trying to accomplish. And, and I know that sounds really motherhood, but I, I think we've got to remind ourselves as fundraisers, with all of the sophistication that we have, with all of the, the ends of accountability and detailed reporting and what have you, um, we're not technicians. We're not solely technicians. We are... Um, if you will, enablers of, of change, and, and part of that that agency responsibility is to really be the donor advocate back into our organization.
1: I think that circles back to what Cherylyn was mentioning about um, how some philanthropists have had really positive experiences, and some of them have not. Uh, when we get closer to our machinations of our own organization, I'm wondering if that would probably be lending itself to not. Um, Jane, Andrea, any thoughts on uh, on what Cherylyn had to say? Or comments on Tom? No,
3: I just yeah. wanted to, uh, to add, um I I think one of the things is as well I agree I totally agree with what Tom just said and I and I, I'm very interested in the perspective of, of how it's changing. I think the key is relationships are still central. What it, for us is interesting as well is who are the relationships with and where are we having an influence, I guess, if we want to have an influence in terms of thinking about um while being incredibly respectful of the fact that the donors want to have a, I mean, this is key, the donors are involved in philanthropy, they're philanthropic because they want to see something change. The vehicle or the organization that they, or organizations that they may work with are, are the ones that we're representing as the fundraisers. But we have to also not get antsy that we can't, build a relationship directly in some cases anymore with, directly with people. We have to be thoughtful, creative, and we still have to offer a level of customer service, uh, if that's the right word, um, to to whoever it is that is the agent for that philanthropy to happen. And one of the – an example recently, I worked with a, um, a an organization in Edmonton that was just um, become established to, do, to work as a, uh, with donor advised funds, and they had called around a number of organisations because they didn't know who the, who the players were in, the, in, in, in Edmonton. So they were very much at the starting point on behalf of their client, and they didn't get very good responses from some of the organisations that they called. People were kind of like, "Well, you're not, you know, you're not the donor." So I'm guessing. I'm not. I'm, I'm just making that up. Maybe they. I don't know why people didn't respond. But I responded really quickly, and as a result, hopefully because of, of listening, understanding what, what they were looking for on behalf of their client, who we didn't know at that point who it was, a gift that came here to support that they are very now very happy about, and took the opportunity to provide a broader understanding of the kinds of things that we're doing within the faculty to that company that we're working on behalf of the donor, because They need. They they are becoming part of the relationship mix, and we shouldn't blow that off.
1: I agree. I think that is a shift. Andrea,
3: I
5: think. Well, I just on that note, I think that um, if if that's the way the donor uh, prefers to work, then if we respect, we need to respect that donor and that person is that that whoever that intermediary is is their representative. just like we're the representative of our our charity. So um i I would hope we would never blow those people off but i'm i'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm sure it's it, i'm sure it's done in the quest to be uh of building that relationship and you, you miss actually the way that the relationship is wanted to be built what being what's offered to you um but i'm i'm uh, you know i'm I'm a big fan of uh Emmett Carson who's the c e o of the Silicon Valley Foundation. <clears throat> And he has done some speaking that I've been fortunate enough to hear around the emerging new school of philanthropy, of philanthropists and how they're going to shape fundraising of the future. And, you know, he's talking about uh a lot of that that certainly the high tech gazillionaires. Um but he talks about uh you know, how they give and the various ways that they do that, you know, they go wide sorry, they don't go wide, they go deep um they they're on 24/7 they think that there are too many charities um that you know why are you still around 100 years later if you're trying to stamp something out charities can conti- um don't work with each other with other charities enough to actually solve systemic issues and you might think that you know you're never going to work with uh a uh, Cheryl Sandberg or a uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg um but the but the reason that is is so important to us is if you think back to the turn of the last century in, in the 1900s it was the carnegies and rockefellers and Brockmans who started the foundations of them as, as a vehicle of giving and that shaped giving and philanthropy and ultimately fundraising all through the 1900s and it certainly it's, it's a long game um to be thinking of but i think philanthropy is a long game and, and working in this field is a long game so I think there's a lot there's there's a lot of research out there and a lot of articles and thinking that i i I think that if we set more attention to that um we we could just really form deeper relationships and and more robust programs and and continue to grow um and shape fundraising.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Thanks, Andrea. Um I want to I want to sh- just in the last part of the of of this conversation um I'm wondering Tom if I could just turn to you for a second and uh, we've had some awesome conversations today about uh uh the sector and and donors particularly. I'm wondering if 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 we uh, if you would like to share with us um some of the things that are going I know you travel extensively. I think you said something like 220 days a year. That's a lot. Um, uh, and and uh, across across the West, and I'm sure other places. But um, you're working with organizations in the big cities, and also in in some of the rural parts of, of of the country. I'm wondering, you know, what does the future look like from their vantage point?
4: Thanks. Thanks so much, Vincent. Um I I have to say that um, a lot of what my my practice is working in smaller rural northern remote communities, and one of the things that I think maybe by force or by need, but I think also more opportunistic is we spend a lot of time talking about collaboration, but I, I think that there's yet a, a ways to go. There's a, a ways down the road for all of us to get better at that. In order for us to do a lot of the things we're doing in the rural context, we need to put the forces together. And whether that's local governments, Indigenous governments, each of who are agents of the crown and actually have charitable status in their own right, or with local grassroots charities, we're able to as mobilize towards common shared ends and um, if nothing else that's been one of the most um, I guess uplifting and encouraging and challenging um, areas of work that I've had and yet to see us deliver on some outcomes whether it's about facilities or social change um, I really do believe that our sector has that ability to to find pathways where we can work together Um, and yes we have our respective mission vision and purpose but at the end of the day we also have things which serve the people that we're there to serve and and i think if, if we can if we can learn from that on a grander context where maybe there's even more resource i just I just wonder what the the potential of a philanthropy might be if if us as charities put our our arms down and our guards down and just thought about focusing on on the opportunity to work together and and I know that doesn't sound very complex um but it is when you try to put it into practice, and it is when there's limited resources uh and it is and they actually produce the results that people need them to produce.
1: Hmm. What's the biggest single issue facing rural charities in, in, uh, in Canada from your perspective? Um,
4: I, I think that the biggest issue is that people really don't understand how much of a force um, and influence uh, rural-based northern remote activity still is. I mean, a lot of the wealth generated in our country still comes out of natural resources and industrial sectors, which are largely driven out of that smaller economy. Yes, we have the decision makers and the the managers of the assets here in our major centers. But in many ways, if we don't have those rural communities thriving and being vitalized and having the opportunities to have people who are willing to stay in those communities to help the resource be developed, um, all of Canada will suffer. And, And so I think we've got to get over a paradigm of well, those guys are just wearing plaid shirts and they really don't matter all that much. Well, they do matter because they are the engine that fuels this nation.
1: Careful, saying somebody wears plaid shirts doesn't necessarily identify anyone as rural anymore. Isn't that a hipster uh, sort of attire? There we go. You see that. You see that in Brooklyn, and you see that in Hannah. <laughs> and, 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 and point of fact, I'm wearing one today in Vancouver. So <laughs> well, you'll fit right in. Do, are you? Are you growing a beard, Tom? Because if you grow a beard and wear short, sh- do you wear short jeans with sort of uh, low cut boots? Uh, you're definitely hipster material. I'm sorry. Everyone- everyone- <laughs> Since we're talking
5: about men's fashion, I, I, I'll. Just wanted to let you know that there was there's a, a new men's fashion line that's come on. that's called Bro Romp,
1: and it's romper suits for
4: men. So, that, and, that's and I don't want
5: to. I, I like I, I,
1: that that sounds very unhygienic. We need to get back onto fundraising. Well,
5: <laughs> I, okay, so I just want to comment. On, I just want to follow up on Tom's comments about uh, collaboration because uh, you know I think I'm probably somewhat uniquely positioned to. Speak, uh, speak to that in that, um there is a, a $120 million campaign in Calgary that involves mm. nine social service agencies. It's called Resolve and I've actually been working on this project since 2010, since it was, it, since prior to it even being, um, a collaborative campaign. And I, I, I'll say two things about that. When we did the, the testing with the community, uh, with potential donors and current and past donors and and uh, when we tested a collaborative model, the um, response uh, to the people, from the people that we interviewed was so overwhelmingly i i, I wouldn't even say positive I, I would say that it was they were adamant that it, it, they should these organizations should go that route and in fact the, the response was so strong. That at the time there were only four agencies involved. it later grew to nine. But if one of those four agencies had not participated, they would have had to have had a very good answer for why they did not participate, because it was seen as such a positive uh, and much-needed um, model to pursue. But the other thing I would say is, collaborative, anything is a lot of work yeah. and the and and managing the collaborative model not just the, the raising of money but managing the collaborative model is is almost like an entity and a need in and of itself and but i then i'd also say that what i said about you know the emerging new school of, of philanthropists and how that's going to shape fundraising uh or sorry giving uh this is something that that Donors like, and they they see the wisdom of it because yeah, I I might be raising money for uh, and and protect I don't know maybe particularly in the social services or human resources area, but um, you know I might be raising money for poverty. But if I'm only raising money for poverty and I'm not working with other organizations to to resolve some kind of an uh, an issue. I'm still going to be raising money for whatever that cause is, 50 years from now, yeah.
4: mm-hmm. and
5: and that's and donors don't that makes sense to people because the world is complex and it's a complex at at many many levels and as is giving and philanthropy and addressing society's causes and needs.
2: Andrea, I I'm so happy that that you spoke to that because I think. Uh, this also speaks to the future of fundraising, but also of philanthropy. And,
4: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know, I'm reminded of, um, of Simone Joyot. Uh She and her uh, husband, Tom uh, Ahern, wrote a book. Uh, I think it was called Keep Your Donors. And in that book, she had a beautiful uh, essay or uh, appendix uh, called Philanthropy's Moral Dilemma. And she is one of my dear mentors and, and friends, um, uh really makes a case, has made a case for her career about the the moral work of fundraising and in a context of increasing inequity and uh social uh disease, uh, if you will, I think uh fundraisers Uh, have an important voice uh, on behalf of their organizations uh, around some of these systemic issues. Uh, And philanthropists uh, have an opportunity to view their giving as a way to help create uh, broader systemic change. In my work with uh, philanthropists, we often talk about um, okay, there's 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 the needs and interests and desires and aspirations of the philanthropist who's giving the money, but there are also needs in the community uh, that live within their own uh, structures and and so forth. And where do those two meet? Right, it's not just about the interests of the donor. Um, those interests have to be matched. Uh, we talk about mission matching, uh, and so I think fundraisers have a unique opportunity. Uh, if they if they are able and interested to view their work through that lens uh that can be very powerful to creating uh that that long-term change that that everyone is working towards right ultimately we want to put ourselves out of business on relative to some of these uh social and human human service issues uh and i think some ability to uh, view those, those issues and have an analysis of that, uh, in the work of, of fundraising brings the moral aspect back to the work. And I think many philanthropists and donors are, are viewing their philanthropy, um, as a moral act, as a spiritual act. And we have to have some fluency around those issues.
1: What a fantastic uh, Mm -hmm. comment, Sherilyn. Thank you for that. Um, Tom, Jane, do you have any, uh, Final comments before I I move us to the – our time's almost up, so I want to keep us on track.
4: Vincent, I I just wanted to, I guess, pick up on Sherilyn's uh, point a little bit and and just say that, you know, I think as as professionals, we often talk about leveraging the donor's dollar. But I I think increasingly the donor who has capacity and wants to know that – Their work is not their work alone. In fact, they want to help mobilize that civil society and they do it through their giving and they see us as the channels to do that. So the more I think we can, um, we can invoke that sense of of passion and moral right and building of community. um, uh, It it moves us away from back to what I said earlier about being technicians and and being these agents for incredibly positive emotional social change that um, I think if we we talked about millennials and boomers and builders and what have you, but these things are intergenerational. We all care about our communities, and I, and I think when we can we can release release, if you will, um, the those who have capacity and those who want to be generous at whatever level that is into doing something and doing it together. Um, I think we have the we have the ability, and maybe I'm just a philosopher, but we have the ability to make our world really better in a, in a real tangible way and especially in the day-to-day when we're thinking about the problems of the world i think philanthropy is that common good that really can be a bonding agent for all of us
1: thank you tom i feel great
4: <laughs> i feel so good after those
1: comments jane any uh, anything before we just move to the uh, the closing uh, closing piece
3: um i just i i just to echo that i i i think there is so much Still so much opportunity, and that I'm very um confident that uh, whatever the channels, whatever the technology, whatever the vehicles that we're ultimately you know looking at using and I mean I mentioned earlier the the technology side of it, and people are kind of you know worried about the relationships but i'm still feel very positive that um particularly um from talking for example to my own nineteen year old son this morning about about this topic that there's still a lot, people do, everyone, and Tom just said it, intergenerational, intergenerationally, um, people do still want to affect change. Just different ways that people are going to be, do it and the different methods that they're going to use. But it, at the end of the day, I'm still very um, very positive about um, The fact that there'll be, people will will be involved in whatever way that they can be in philanthropy and fundraisers will continue to be able to be go-betweens to affect social change, whether they're using technology or in person or whatever method we're using to do that.
1: Thanks, Jane. So the future of fundraising clearly uh, has some, you know, as you would expect in the 21st century, those intersections between a rising demographic and their technology, but it still is uh, guided by collaboration and relationships, um, and I think I we would, learned a new would, word t- today: fundraising hygiene. Go ahead.
5: <laughs> I would I would say more than that, um, Vincent. I, I, I think that you know we can talk about what is fundraising going to look like, but, you know, in, in the future, uh, and and some of the comments earlier I think Ron and others made. We as fundraisers, we tend to. Uh, get bogged down in technical jargon and, and even the titles of some jobs, they don't reflect really what we do. They reflect the internal hierarchy of the organization. And if we're supposed to be people, build, people, pe- people, 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 and building relationships, yeah, um, we need to be looking outward. And I think a lot of people are, don't really, um, are not really able to draw the distinction between fundraising and philanthropy, and I don't think you can talk about fundraising and the future of fundraising without talking about the future of philanthropy, because they're not the same mm. thing. You know, I've often said that fundraising is the engine, is is one of the primary engines of philanthropy, and we, I think, as fundraisers, we need to have a really um, well-defined perspective. On how what we do as fundraisers and in fundraising in our organization speaks to and connects with philanthropists who are who are engaging in philanthropic uh, giving, and I and when I say philanthropists engaging in philanthropic giving, I mean at all levels. Because I think all donors are, are philanthropists. All
1: right. So so, so we I, need to take sides, I I think we need to have an entire episode on that distinction alone. Actually, that comes up so often. Um fundraising philanthropy, um but I'm also um sensitive to our time, so I want to give uh, a huge shout out to all of you for for joining us. But before we go, um Tom, is there anything you want our listening audience to know or hear, or where can they get in touch
4: with you, or what's going on, or what's the biggest deal in your life? thank you um again i i I just have to say that um i'm I'm extremely grateful for this conversation. It's uplifting, it's encouraging. I think that we have people around the table virtually today who are thinking of these things as important. And, and it, it reminds me of a quote from, from Maya Angelou on, on the human family. Um, so we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. And we need to remember that as we think about our society, we, as we think about our charities, as we think about uh, globalization and diversification of our nation and of our world. And while while we're different, we're still the same. And I think um, the essence, just as Andrea said, the essence is about philanthropy and understanding and understanding what it really means, and that's the love of mankind. And I think philanthropy and the practice of it represents the best of humanity. So it's just, it's encouraging to be in this field for a lifetime. It's encouraging to know that there are batons we're passing to next generations of great professionals. And I'm, I'm just excited about how philanthropy and the work of fundraising professionals is going to influence our world.
1: Thank you very much, Tom. Um, Cheryl Lynn I know you have to go uh, uh, quite quickly so I'd like to open it up to you to share with us what you'd like to uh, have us here and if you need to go at the end of that feel free we'll circle back
2: no that's fine um, thank you for the opportunity to participate in this conversation I think as as professionals in the space we need more forums and opportunities to have these kinds of conversations um, I I'm just really grateful um, to have found my space in this work, um, it's uh, it, it. I've always found it to be such a privilege um, to work for organizations, and and now uh, when I work with families, um, it's uh, it's an honor to be part of part of that process, and um, uh, and. Eager and curious, what the future will look like, and and uh, as we all do, kind of navigating what our individual roles will be uh, as the the profession and the field changes. Um, and uh, I'm I am on Twitter. I, I'm DH and um, uh, really enjoy connecting with uh, colleagues, uh, not just in Canada but all over the world. And um, look forward to another opportunity to uh, join. Uh, another
1: podcast so thank you. Awesome and we do want to have people come back thank you Sherilyn.
4: Jane?
3: Yes um, thank you I I just I did want to actually uh, just mention a couple of things about the Faculty of Arts here at the U of A that you guys may not know or people out there may not know. Uh, Tell us. We launched a a formal co-op program in the Faculty of Arts at the U of A Uh, this last week Um, so students coming here will be able to um, participate in work experience as part of their degree and I think that's of interest probably to the sector because um, we have a lot of programming uh, that is relevant to positions perhaps in in the not-for-profit sector or fundraising so if people are thinking about hiring amazing art students that might be an opportunity uh, for a, a real win-win for some of our students to experience um, the world of the not-for-profit sector or, or even potentially fundraising. Um, so that's really exciting. Uh, on a personal front and professional front for me, I'm looking forward to continuing my role on um, the AFP, so Association of Fundraising Professionals uh, Foundation, Canada, Canada Foundation. Um, which of course, Vincent, we're both on that together. Um I it's really exciting work thinking about how we can continue to support uh the education, promotion of diversity, research that's going to support the fundraising sector in, in Canada. So that's that's something that I'm really looking to get my teeth into a little bit more in the next uh year or so. So that's exciting. Um and as you mentioned, yes, I am I'm also on Twitter, so at JP1310. Um, is my Twitter handle, and I often will comment and tweet and retweet um, all sorts of uh, fun stuff to do with fundraising, as well as soccer in the UK and CrossFit and various other things that I'm interested in. <laughs> There's only a thread in there around fundraising and, and uh, following lots of great people on Twitter and like to share their information. So look for me on there, too.
1: Well, thank you, Jane. Thank you. Thanks very much. Andrea, you get the uh, the last word today before we wrap it up. What do you think you want to, the uh, listening audience to hear? Or? Yeah.
5: Well, I just uh, want to say that, that how much I always enjoy being part of these kinds of conversation, and I agree that, you know, we we really should have more of them, um, particularly if it's, you know, oh. upwards of an hour that takes me away from listening or watching the ca- cable news these days, particularly in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's much more inspiring than anything else I'm hearing in the news. uh but but, you know yeah I mean I'm also on Twitter AJS at AJS McManus I am an episodic tweeter but when I do start tweeting I do it in a flurry so you can follow me
1: there (laughs) (laughs) thanks thanks Andrea I want to thank each of you for joining us on Brain Trust Philanthropy powered by Betrayo and with that that's a wrap
0: well that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy I hope you will tune in next month and our panel will include Georgina Altman, Vice President of Advancement at Lakeland College, Tanya Little, Director of Development and Partnerships with Food Banks Canada, Darcy Acton, Owner and Principal with Milestone Consulting, and Susan Mullen, Senior Vice President of Philanthropy at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health Foundation. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.